This is Dev Propulsion Labs, the podcast about building successful developer tools, hosted by Evil Martians. Hi, this is Dev Propulsion Labs and me, your host, Victoria Melnikova. I'm very excited to introduce Mishko Haveri, today's guest. He is the CTO at Builder.io, creator of AngularJS, Karma, Quick. Please welcome. So let's start, you know, from the beginning. Well, I guess it's not the beginning, but it's the beginning of Angular. <laughs> How did it come about? I know I started Angular about a year before my oldest was born. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh, gee, I have to get this thing finished before he's born. <laughs> uh, it's hard to believe that I've been at it for so many years. I think Angular came to be because I wanted to, I, I built a lot of uh, web apps and, you know, as a, as a part of a day job. And I wanted to know, like, is it possible to simplify the work? Because if you think about it, all the web apps are really just a marshalling problem, right? You want to get data from the browser to the database and from the database back to the browser, right? And so part of that problem is, is data binding. And the question I had in my mind was like, was it possible to build UIs in a way that you don't have to know how to code? My initial goal was to be like, hey, we have all these web designers who kn clearly know HTML, but maybe they don't, they're not experts at coding. Could they, uh, you know, be able to build a very simple UI? And so the original goal of AngularJS was just that. Uh, turns out that, you know, if you make something easy for designers, you're also making it easy for developers. And so uh, developers is actually where it took off. But it originally wasn't meant to be as a general purpose framework. It originally it meant to be more of a, like a rapid application building platform. Um, but it really took off as a general purpose framework. And I think it took off because there really weren't many alternatives. I mean, at the time you had Backbone and Backbone was a bit different, right? Because Backbone provides the reactivity part, but it doesn't provide the, uh, the rendering part or the application architecture part or any of the other parts. And so I think, uh, Angular became successful mainly because it was one of the first frameworks that had like the end to end, um, solution to the whole problem. So instead of having lots of small technologies that you have to glue together to, to come up with something, um, it was just the one thing that did, did all the pieces. And I think that certainly helped his, his adoption. The other one was, I think it just, luck, you know, luck would have it, was one of the first frameworks to do this. And so it was just a good time. What was the most challenging part in creating it? I think the hardest thing is to just not realize just how much work it is. If there's one thing to build a prototype and to prove to yourself that it works. And it's a quite another thing to go and um, build something that others can use. And the hard part is you have to document it. You have to explain it. You have to make it easy and obvious. You have to maintain it. You have to make sure you have backwards compatibility. And so uh, it turns out that the, what I would call the, the fun part of like just creating something new, that's like 20% of the whole problem. The rest of it is a lot of hard work of just making sure that others have a good experience. And that kind of falls in the category of lots of polish, right? And while polish is super, super important, I don't think most people really think that it's the most fun thing to do. Yeah, and it's also easy to get carried away developing. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about the motivation to make Angular open source? And how has that decision affected the direction in which it was going? Yeah. It was open source from the beginning. Actually, Angular started kind of like a separate project that I started my free time while working for Google. And so from day one, it was open source. It's not that 
we developed something at Google and then later we decided to open source it. It was kind of the other way around, which that, you know, I started something as an open source thing and then later Google took over it and invested money and effort into developing it. And so the open sourceness just kind of stuck with it because, you know, I mean, I guess in theory, you could take an open source project and bring it internally, but that's not kind of what normally happens. Uh, and so it was kind of a happy accident, so to speak, uh, but it ended up this way. You know, it has this indirect value to companies. You know, people are known, like Google is well known for supporting Angular, right? And so there's lots of goodwill that it generates. And it turns out actually people want to work on cool open source projects like Angular. And so like hiring is another big thing. Uh, it's it's so much easier to hire. It like actually turns out that many of the best engineers that work on Angular came there because they just started contributing to it in open source. And they just had so much fun and contributed such high quality code that at some point we, we reached out and say, hey, you look pretty amazing. You, you just want to come and work for us? Yeah. I mean, engineers love open source. Evil Martians, specifically engineers that I work with, they dedicate a lot of time to open source. We have, I think, over 100 open source projects created by Evil Martians. But not every project succeeds. Did you ever anticipate that Angular would become that influential? You're not as no, influential was, as it is that today. That was absolutely, that was absolutely a surprise. That was never the plan or, I mean, uh, I'm happy that it, it has become like that, but it was never a specific plan or a goal. Uh, I'm, you know, I really was just trying to solve a problem of making it easier to build applications. And this is kind of the happy side effect. Of it. Now let's go to the next stage in your life. How did you transition from? Google working on Angular to become in the CTO at Builder.io. You know, um, I was at Google for about 16 years and that is a long time. And so it's not that I was unhappy or anything like that. It's that I was at the point in life I, that I realized that, you know, I need to either do something new and different or I'm going to be basically institutionalized and forever be at Google uh, where I am. And so I chose to kind of go and explore um, mm -hmm. to see the world from a different angle, so to speak. And it was mainly a motivation of just being somewhere for so long, you just get comfortable, right? And so at some point you're like, okay, I need to push myself to new directions, new, new ways of doing things. I actually didn't want to start another framework. That was also kind of a happy accident, so to speak. I was, you know, talking to different companies, different startups, trying to figure out, you know, what my next step would be. And when I came upon Builder, I realized that their problem that they were facing, which is, was basically like, hey, we're creating this headless visual content for our customers. And, you know, a lot of them complain that it's not, that the startup isn't fast enough because a lot of them are uh, e-commerce platforms. And the interesting thing about Builder was that Builder has this thing called mitosis, which allows them to generate the output in any technology that's out there. And so Builder can easily generate code for Angular or React or Vue or Svelte or Solid, etc. And I think Builder kind of realized pretty quickly is it doesn't matter in which technology you output the, the, the site. The performance is about the same. I mean, there are some differences, but not really staggering. And the only website that was able to get a good performance was the one that was HTML only, the one that did not have any JavaScript attached to it, right? And so, you know, that's kind of frustrating because like, well, yes, but like interactivity is a part of the thing that you want for your customers, right? So like, mm -hmm. I understand that static sites are fast, but like, I need interactivity. 
And so I was actually looking at it from the other point of view, which was like, I, I kind of recognize that hydration is the problem. And because all of the frameworks use hydration, it is the reason why all perform just about the same. And so you can ask yourself, well, what's hydration, right? And, and a lot of people define it in a lot of different ways. I, I define it in the way of hydration is basically the, the boot up process of the framework, right? It's, the, it's how the framework figures out what to do. And the framework really needs three things to know, right? It needs to know where the components are. It needs to know where the bindings are. It needs to know uh, the components and the binding that kind of go together, right? Then it needs to know the state of the system, you know, what the value of the system is. And finally, it needs to know where the listeners are, right? And the way everybody does this to get this information, the way all the frameworks get this information is that they simply re-execute the application end-to-end. And this is why the startup is slow. And so the big innovation with Quick was say, well, what if we can get the same information? Like our framework also needs this information. There's no way around this. But what if we could get it in another way rather than just re-executing the application? What if we can get it as part of the SSR? When the application runs on a server, the framework has all of this information, right? It knows where the button boundaries are. It knows where the state is. It knows uh, where the listeners are. But as part of the SSR, it gets lost. What if you don't lose it? What if you can persist it and then send it over to the client? And in that world, which we call the resumable world, it turns out the startup performance is essentially instant because there is no code to execute. You know, it's not about the amount of work that needs to happen. It's about the fact that we need to parse and execute all of this JavaScript we have never seen before. And I think this is a place where a lot of frameworks get this wrong. Because when you look at the performance metrics, a lot of them will say like, look how fast we can add rows or subtract rows or, you know, update the UI. And all these metrics are great, but they assume that the JavaScript VM has already warmed up, that the jitter already did its magic, you know, and that everything is up and ready. And they, and the performance metrics really don't apply to the startup performance because of the startup performance, there is no jitter. You're running the code in the slowest possible way because it's the first time that the JavaScript virtual machine has seen the code, right? So it has to parse it. It has to build up the AST tree. It has to run all this first level compile. It has to decide which parts are really worth to compile in more efficient ways. And that takes time. And that is the reason why, uh, you know, the startup performance of the current websites is so slow. And I don't think people have really realized this yet. I think people are still stuck in this like, Oh, look at Solid. Solid's the fastest because, you know, they've optimized everything. And it is true. Solid is the fastest. I'm not taking that away from them. It's just that I don't think that's the thing to care about. Like, all frameworks are fast enough once they're up and running. You know, even if you choose one of the slowest frameworks out there, you still can build a good interactive website. That isn't the problem. It's the startup that's really kind of ruining the day for us, right? And in that category, I don't even think we have any good metrics. You know, most of the metrics we have are all about runtime performance, not about startup performance. And startup performance is actually extremely difficult to measure. You know, how exactly would you even go about it? And, you know, how exactly would you make sure that the browser, the, the, the metric you're doing is always fresh, right? It's always, you know, without the jitter. So it all kind of uh, makes it more complicated. And so to me, like the, the, the goal we should be caring about is, is a slightly different metric, which is to say, you navigate to a page and you see a button. How long before I can click on that button so that the, but the click is registered, right? That, that's kind of the goal one. 
And the goal two that you should be caring about is, great, I've clicked on the button and it was registered. How long before the UI updates, right? And to me, those two metrics are really what matters. And it, it turns out that in most frameworks, one, uh, it turns out if you click too fast on a button, the framework even misses it, right? It doesn't even know that it thinks. So there's, there's a long time before even the click is even registered. And then there's a second long time, which is like, okay, now it's registered. How long before it's processed, right? And so most frameworks, because they pay the cost upfront, they're relatively good at the second part. You know, once you click, they're pretty good at processing it. Uh, what they're not very good at is how long before I can click? And I'm sure you had this experience many times where you navigate to a page and you're like, oh, I have to click right here. And you click, nothing happens. Click again, nothing happens. Click again, nothing happens. It's like, ah. And then finally a pop-up comes up. It's like, ah, I just wanted the button that's under the pop-up. Can you make it close, right? <laughs> and it's just this frustrating experience you have. And that's the thing that I want to really solve. How do you think this approach changes the, the landscape? of web application performance? I think in the future, I don't, first of all, I don't know if Quick will succeed. I mean, I certainly hope so, and I'm trying hard to make sure that happens. But I do know that in the future, I think this is the last generation of hydration-based frameworks that we have. I think people who, who follow this, like for example, I chat with Ryan Carniato all the time, he understands the value of resumability and he's thinking hard how to integrate it into his framework. Marco team from eBay, they also have done a whole bunch of work to get uh, pretty close to, to resumability, I would say. Or maybe you can even call it resumability in their world, depending on how you define the details. And so, of course, there's Google Wiz, which has been around for almost a decade. Um, it's, it's very different in terms of its philosophy, but if you squint, you can see that it's also, in a sense, resumable in a sense that it doesn't execute application JavaScript code until it needs to rather than all up front, which is what everybody else does. So I think at this point, enough examples of what it should be like have been built and shown to the world that I think uh, all new generation of frameworks will be built in the future. I think the resolvability is going to be a key part of it because the advantage you get in terms of the startup performance is just huge. The thing that I've noticed is that when people compare frameworks, they build a simple Hello World app. And with the Hello World app, any framework can be amazingly fast, right? You can always make it work. That's not the hard part. You know, the hard part is when you start building a large scale application and there's a hundred people working on it and you keep adding and adding a feature, right? At some point it just becomes too slow. And then what do you do? How do you fix this particular problem, right? And this is a problem that doesn't appear at the beginning of your journey. It's a problem that appears later in your journey. And by the time the problem appears, you can't change the framework. You're stuck with whatever you have, right? And, and this is kind of the hard part about this thing because the part of the stell here is like, look, with Quick, you won't have that problem because Quick from day one takes care of like lazy loading, uh, make sure you don't have to execute the code upfront, et cetera. And it promises that when the application grows in size, you won't have this particular problem, right? But it's a tomorrow's problem. It's not today's problem. And so it's a kind of a harder sell for people to kind of explain and for them to kind of appreciate it. It's almost like the people who really love Quick, who find it amazing, those are all people who've like built large apps before and they ran into these problems. And so these problems are dear into their heart because they've kind of seen it firsthand. And those are the people who usually become the biggest proponents of Quick because they kind of understand like, oh wow, there's a whole category of things that I just don't have to worry about in the future. 
So you mentioned a little bit earlier that you didn't have plans to create a new framework, but here we are. <laughs> You're creating one. How does that dilemma arise? Like, what happens that you're faced with that? <laughs> you know, yeah. So as I said, we were, um, I'm, I ran into to, uh, to Steve, a builder, and he had this problem of, you know, making websites and having these websites to be fast enough. And so as I was listening to him, I said, you know what? I'm toying with this idea. And I showed him this prototype of Quig. Uh, it wasn't called Quig back in the day. And he looked at it and he's like, oh my gosh, it totally solves my problem. Because he understood, he basically suffered through all of the different hydration variations that exist mm -hmm. out there. And he understood that like, hey, the only site that gets decent performance is the HTML site. So how, how do we have HTML only site that's interactive? Really the question is, right? And so Quick comes along and, or rather the, the prototype and it says like, hey, you could do this. And so the nice thing about the fact that Builder has this thing called mitosis is it said, well, let me modify mitosis so the mitosis knows how to produce quick code. And so he modifies mitosis over the weekend and then, you know, comes back Monday and says, you know, I modified it and I built our site using quick and like, oh my gosh, it's just as fast as pure HTML, but it's interactive, right? And that was the big aha moment for him. And so he started then kind of convincing me. He's like, you know what? The world needs this thing. We need to kind of incorporate it, you know, come join us. And let's build this and let's create a differentiator for Builder, right? Builder is not just a CMS that, you know, does what every other CMS does, but it has two unique advantages, right? One is it's headless, it's visual, it's drag and drop. There are many drag and drop CMSs out there, but they're not headless, they're hosted. You know, you can go use Wix mm -hmm. or page builders, et cetera. Those are all great, but they're hosted on somebody else's um, <laughs> URL and somebody else's machines. So... For people who, you know, are building their own custom website in like React or Angular or Quick or, you know, Java script or anything like that, they need a way to say like, well, now I need a drag and drop. And for that world, drag and drop is almost non-existent. And Builder is kind of the exception in it. And part of the reason why it's non-existent is because in order to have a drag and drop system, you have to tightly integrate with the underlying framework, right? And so... If you're building a CMS, do you want to just build CMS for React and nobody else? That becomes a problem, right? And so most people don't take that path. I think the unique thing about Builder is that the Builder did take that path and they solved the fact they have to have it for a lot of different frameworks through mitosis, through this piece of code that knows how to write the code once and will generate idiomatic code for every single framework out there. And so in this way, it's relatively easy for Builder to make new SDKs for different technologies. New technology comes along, uh, Builder can just modify mitosis and voila, now we have an SDK for your particular platform. And that's exactly how the SDK for Quick came to be. Uh, we just modified mitosis and we said, okay, you know, this is what Quick code looks like. Go generate us Quick SDK, right? And it generates all the pieces needed so you can have a drag and drop editor inside of your technology of choice, whether it's Quick, Angular, React, Vue, Sculpt, and so on and so forth. And so this is how, how it came to be is that I was kind of pulled into it by Builder and said, you know, because they're like, look, our customers need this. Like we could really have an amazing product offering if we could give them not just a headless visual TMS, but also one that performs significantly better than other uh, anything out there because everything out there really relies on hydration. That's very interesting. I mean, as a CDO in a company, how do you maintain a balance between innovation and business needs? Because 
you seem like a technical visionary, right? You can be pretty abstract, but you're still kind of like down to earth in terms of business. You you know that clients need that. But yeah. I think it's um, easy for engineers to get kind of like excited about technology and uh, get It is extremely about. difficult. And you're assuming that I'm actually good at that. And I don't think I am. I think I do get carried away from time to time. But I think uh, there's a good balance between me and Steve, the CEO, right? So I have grandiose visions. And then the CEO, the Steve kind of brings me to the ground and says, okay, this is what we can and cannot do. Let's see if we can thread the needle and spend the least amount of effort and get the most amount of value, right? I think a startup to a large degree is about, I, as someone has put it, how do you earn the right to scale? In other words, don't design a system from day one to be unbelievably scalable and do everything because you don't actually know if that system is the right system, right? And so to earn the right to scale means that you build the simplest possible thing that works and then see if there is pressure to, to force you down the path of scalability. When I mean scalability, it's just, just the scale. It might be also support features, uh, anything else in that sense, right? The idea is you want to build something that is simple, as simple as possible, or the MVP, the most you know, minimal viable product, right? Something you can get away with that is simple, maybe smoke and mirrors behind the scene, that's fine. Put it out there and see if it sticks. You know, if it doesn't, that's fine. That you've learned a whole bunch of things not to do. You've learned a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. And you didn't spend a huge amount of time getting there, right? But if it does stick, then you're like, okay, now that it does stick and I see that there is demand, I can go back and fix all these shortcuts because now I know that they're, that they're actually valuable, right? And so this is what I mean. Like you have to earn your right to scale. That's interesting. It's going to be my takeaway from this conversation. I think you need to earn your right to scale. That sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty nice. I, I don't think I'm the one who came up with that. I've heard it somewhere else, but I, it also kind of hit me as well. Because I think as engineers, we naturally want to design everything perfect from day one. And there's nothing wrong with it. If the thing you're designing, you are for sure, you know that it is the right thing, right? But the thing that we miss a lot of times is that we don't know. We have opinions, but we don't know. And really the only way to know is to build something and give it to the customer right away or whoever it is. And that's the kind of the dichotomy there is like, well, yeah, but building it takes a lot of time. So how do we, I build the absolute bare minimum so that I can get the feedback of if I'm on the right track or not. I have a question that's similar, but a little bit different. So at Evil Martians, we're trying to crack the code of commercializing open source. That's been our big mission throughout the years. And you yourself have been involved, I mean, in creating solutions for business, but also in creating open source tools, right? It's, or sometimes it's the same thing. <laughs> How do you maintain a balance between creating an open source solution, but still making it commercially viable? People think open source is free. And it isn't free. Like, well, it depends what you mean by the word free, right? There's the free as in speech and free as in beer, right? And I am all for open source being free as in speech, right? As in like, you can take it, you can copy it, you can use it, or you can build upon it and you can do great things on top of that. I am all for that. But it isn't free in terms of beer, right? It costs time and effort of somebody to put it together. And that somebody has a family and, you know, they need to uh, provide for the family. They need to take their kids to college, et cetera. And so it isn't free from that point of view. And so a lot of people, I feel like they confuse the two parts and they almost like get offended if you mm -hmm. want to monetize the particular thing. And I think monetization 
is important because it actually would mean that there's more open source. If building open source software would be a good way to make a living, I think a lot more people would, would do it because as of right now, open source, if you do it by yourself, you know, without a sponsor like Google or Builder, et cetera, I think it's a good way to become poor. And that just isn't fair, especially given the fact that, you know, open source kind of runs the world. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, if you're getting a lot of benefit from a particular project, then there should be a way to kind of give back to it. But like today, if you look at it, there really isn't even a way to give back. Like, let's say you're, you know, a big company and you want to contribute back to the open source. Like, who do you cut a check to? You know? Because you're not using one open source product, you're using thousands of open source products inside of the repo, right? So who do you cut the check to? And then how do you even do that? Like, you can't just like randomly choose a person and be like, here's, you know, whatever, thousand dollars. It doesn't work that way, right? Like they have to have some kind of a tax ID or this or company to accept that, right? Like, it's just a complicated process. And I think we are in this weird situation where even if you have large companies that benefit from it and they would like to contribute back, there isn't an easy way to do so. And that's one, one kind of the problem. The other problem is the culture. And the culture is, as I said, people confuse free of speech and free as in beer. And they seem to get extremely offended when you try to even suggest that like, hey, there are people on the other side that need to buy food and feed their kids, you know, like, um, we have to make sure that, that they can do so because if they can, then, you know, there will be no open source. And I think that the world has con- uh, benefited greatly from the value of open source. And so getting there, I don't know what the answer is. You know, I, I have no idea how to get there, but I am not liking the, the place we are. And I'm also not liking that there's a lot of people who have this attitude of, you know, they come to your issue tracker and just start screaming at you like, fix my thing. It's the most important thing in the world. And I'm like, listen, buddy, uh, first of all, you didn't even take time to make a proper reproduction case. And second, like, yeah, I understand this is important for you, but like, is it important for me? You know, you can work the bank and fix it yourself if you think you can, you know, whatever, right? Uh, and it's just this, this demand of like, you must fix my thing, even though you're not particularly paying anything for it uh, is, is really strange. Yeah. And it leads to burnout. That's one of the problems. It does. Open source it does. Well. And, you know, that's the, that's the thing about open source. It's kind of counterintuitive, but as it grows, it becomes more difficult to maintain as well, you know, because there yeah. are different directions and it's, it's difficult to maintain consistency, et cetera. Maybe you have any advice on how to maintain that cohesion as open source grows? I don't know if I have advice, but I have a firsthand experience, you know, <laughs> Angular at the beginning was very agile. It was easy for us to change mm-hmm. things, improve things and add things. But as it became more and more popular and more people used it, and even inside of Google, it became essentially impossible to change anything because uh, any change would break somebody. And even if you, if it, you know, didn't intentionally break them just to kind of trace down all of the places where things don't work, where people are maybe using the, the framework incorrectly, it just accidentally works or anything like that. It's a huge amount of time and effort, right? And a natural thing for people to always do is to say like, you broke me, it's your fault. It's like, well, no, you're kind of using it the wrong way. You're not supposed to do it this way. Uh, you know, and then of course you have a debate, et cetera. And it's just exhausting. 
And so as projects become larger and more successful in a weird fist of fate, right? They actually become less agile and harder to grow and maintain and take it to the next level because there's, you know, so there's any change you do becomes a bug that somebody depends on. You know, every bug that somebody depends on is basically something you can't change because like, well, there's this huge project that depends on it and do you really want to make the project incompatible with you? You know, there's one thing for open source outside, but like you're, for example, at Google, you can't break, you know, any number of existing Google applications internally, right? You have to make sure you take them along. So you either have to refactor them or, or something like that. So um, Angular actually had a lot of tooling to make refactoring automatic. Mm-hmm. But even so, I would say that it definitely hindered the ability to, to grow the project over time. Yeah, I mean, it comes with, with both, right? There are people who can enrich your ecosystem and they can write a plugin or whatever, you know, introduce it to a new programming language. But as you, as you said, yeah, it slows it down as well. So interesting. Yeah, so it goes both ways. Um, I guess this falls in the category of it's a good problem to have. <laughs> That's right. As technology evolves fast, we see the surge in the developer tools space specifically. Do you have any vision uh, as to what it's going to transform into in the five, 10 years and maybe how AI is going to impact it? I don't know if it's Yeah, AI the AI is- part is interesting, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. To me, the most shocking part is just how AI came out of nowhere. Nobody talked about anything and all of a sudden, bam, everybody talks nothing but about, about AI. It, it's just absolutely fascinating. AI is interesting because... On some level, it's like, is that all we are? Like, I look at ChatGPT and I'm like, oh yeah, I could see how humans work the same exact way. You know, when I start talking, I don't know what the end of the sentence is going to be. I don't plan out my sentence. I just open my mouth and stuff comes out. That is literally what ChatGPT does, right? I'm just a well-trained bullshitter, I guess is what it comes down to, right? Like, But it is, and that's what a ChatGPT is. Now, I love this book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I think it's one of Mm -hmm. my my favorite books. Uh, I joke that it's the brain operating manual. So if you have a brain, you should definitely read the operating manual, how to use it. And in that book, there's a psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist, I don't know, one of those. He talks about, you know, all these experiments on, you know, human thinking, et cetera, and what the results are. And he's not a software engineer by any stretch of imagination, right? Has nothing to do with software. But you read that book, And he talks about the idea of system one and system two, that you basically have two different brains that work in very, very different way. There are different implications for these two things. And when you read this, you realize, oh my gosh, system one is Chad GPT. It is literally that. But the system two is is the interesting bit. It's the one that knows how to make plans. It knows how to execute the plans. It knows how to set goals, et cetera. And Chad GPT can't do any of that stuff. I call the system two like the symbolic manipulator. It's the thing that, you know, doesn't get confused. Let me, let me give you an example of what, what confuses ChatGPT. I, I love this example because it's so simple. You say, hey, ChatGPT, give me uh, a recipe for yogurt. No problem. It gives you a recipe for yogurt. It says, you know, take this much, whatever, ingredient A, ingredient B, whatever, cook it, whatever, do some stuff to it, right? And you say, okay, fine. Give it to me for half the size. And ChatGPT, for the most part, gets it right. And then you say, give it to me for one-seventh size. And garbage comes out, right? Because nobody 
on the internet talks about one seventh recipe of yogurt. People talk about a recipe for yogurts. People talk about like maybe half the size recipe for yogurt, but nobody talks about one seventh. And so this is a perfect example of like where for humans it's trivial. Oh, just take a regular one and divide by seven and whatever, right? But that part is system two. That's not system one, that's a system two part. And this is the part that we don't really have anything on. As, I mean, we as in, um, you know, software industry, like we don't really know how to make system two stuff. We're amazingly good at system one, the, the large language model, right? Like it's amazing. But system two is basically the thing in your head that, that looks at what system one produces, right? Like ChatGPT is producing some garbage or whatever, some, some thought. And then system two looks at it as like, does this make sense? And if not, let me stop you. And I know you know people who don't have system two, right? Like stuff that comes out of their mouths, you go like, have you thought about what you just said? <laughs> right? And so that's what we're missing, that system two part. Uh, and I don't know how long it's going to be before we get there, but we have nothing so far, like not even an inkling of how it might be done. Okay. If not for the creative problem solving, <laughs> what are the other trends that are waiting for us in the developer tool space? Do you see any trends in, in open source and developer tools? Well, hopefully the trend in open source is going to be that somebody will figure out how to make open source sustainable, right? <laughs> because I don't think right now it is very sustainable. The way open source works today is there is a, a benefactor, so to speak, mm -hmm. and they help make it happen. Uh, now, there are kind of a hybrid worlds, like, for example, Next.js, like they develop open source tooling which just so happens works really well with their hosting providing stuff, right? You don't have to use it, but you might as well, right? Because but it's it just nice, makes right? It <laughs> so easy, so nice, yes. it's so simple. And I think uh, that is a reasonable way of doing it. And I actually like that model. And that's the model that Builder is going after, right? Like we're saying, look, we're going to build quick. You don't have to use it with our thing, but at some point you're probably going to come across the problem of like, hey, I need to have a CMS system. And at that point, like, you don't have to use ours. You can use whatever you want, but you might as well, right? And then this is basically how we can pay for, for it. So open source is a way to, you know, just purely altruistic reasons to kind of be good to humanity, um, but also beneficial in the sense of uh, it creates awareness. Like mm -hmm. I think Builder for the size of the company that we are, we're actually pretty well known in the industry. And I think it is because of our open source work uh, that it does that, right? And being known in the industry is kind of drives basically the sales eventually. It is, you know, at some point, some person is like, hey, I need the CMS system. You know, who should I use? Oh, wow. You know what? That, that builder company, they have this amazing blog post. They do all this amazing technology. Might as well hey, look at what they have. You know, they probably, if they're good at all this other stuff. They're probably going to be good at the CMS stuff as well. And so you might as well explore it. And so it's a way of, of generating sales leads in a way, it's both being altruistic and providing value to the company, you know, really expecting nothing in return, but also a way of uh, getting awareness and um, and good goodwill with the developers. I couldn't agree more. I think the only way to do open source sustainably is to monetize it. I do believe that. Yes, you know, wholeheartedly. Right? Yeah. Who's gonna pay for all these many hours? Like, open source takes many, many hours, right? It is many hours of I'm doing open source, therefore I'm not doing something else, right? I could be taking my hours and uh, going to the highest bidder and have a much better 
uh, you know, standard of living or whatever, right? But I part of the why I'm doing open source because I just love it. It's so much fun. Yeah. We actually came to an end of the episode and I like to end each episode with this simple question. I call it warm fuzzy. What makes you feel great about what you're doing right now? I know it's going to sound cliche, but I actually love the fact that it makes the world a better place in the sense that we all benefit if our websites are faster, right? It's just such a less frustrating life, right? I, we all know the moments where we're trying to do something very simple on the website and it's just taking forever. And we get frustrated. We use colorful language to get over that moment. And so knowing that, hey, we can fix all that stuff. We can do it better. I think that's kind of what drives me and uh, makes it enjoyable. Sounds pretty great to me. Last but not least, do you have any call to action for our audience? What would you like them to do? Go explore and learn about different stuff, right? The more things you learn about, the more technologies you're aware of, the more countries you travel, the more languages you know, the more you're going to realize the nuance between things. I think there is way too much lack of nuance. Not enough, like way too much, or the opposite, right? Not enough nuance in, in many things that we do. Uh, we love to label things black and white and true or false, et cetera, where, where the, the truth is a lot more uh, complicated. And the only way to get to it is to go live all the different sides of things. And so my only uh, recommendation for people is just try different things. You know, don't take their words for it. Try it, compare it yourself. And in the process, if nothing else, you're going to gain a new point of view. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for catching yet another episode of Dev Propulsion Labs. We at Evil Martians transform growth stage startups into unicorns, build developer tools, and create open source products. If your developer tool needs help with product design, development, or SRE, visit evilmartians.com slash devtools. See you in the next.